You're listening to the Gov Future Podcast, highlighting discussions and insights on innovative technology impacting the public sector. Hear from experts working with and inside the government on ways that technology is shaping the future of the public sector. On this episode, we feature a panel discussion from the April 20th, 2023 Gov Future Forum event in Washington, D.C. We'll hear how large language models such as ChatGPT and Google Bard are impacting government at all levels, risks, and ethical concerns on the use of AI-generated content, and how governments are responding to their use. The panelists at this event represented the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, National AI Institute, State of Maryland, and Coursera. Stay tuned. myself. I'll have the panelists introduce themselves fairly quickly, but this is our hot topic panel on large language models, including things like ChatGPT and how the government is handling that. We are, I'm excited because we have both state and federal representation here, so we can get kind of different perspectives. Uh, my name is Tony Bozzi. I'm a presidential management fellow. I work in the National Artificial Intelligence Institute, which is a federal agency. Hi, everybody. I'm Jeremy Gallant. I'm with Coursera for Government. Um, as mentioned earlier, we do uh, uh, for cities, guiding projects, and uh, artificial intelligence is an area where we're very prominent. And just personally, I'm very interested in the kind of relationship that we have to our computers, right? And so, as AI rapidly develops, right, something we've been seeing all morning, um, how does the human remain in the loop and actually get elevated in the loop? And so, I think that's where education plays a very critical role. Hi, everybody. I'm Pat McLaughlin. I'm the State Chief Data Officer for Maryland. Um, I also serve as the Acting Executive Director for um, our, Mer our MD Think program, which essentially is our cloud-based environment for delivering services to essentially the most vulnerable Marylanders. That's family services, um, any type of, of food and, uh, and nutritional benefit services. So the mention of SNAP before, um, our you know, child support, our, our child welfare, um, our CGEMS programs, all of those are all facilitated through that particular cloud-based program. So uh, serving that role right now as well. Thank you very much. Um, Scott Bellavo from the uh, United States Patent Trademark Office um, at the USPTO. We generally are responsible for the issuance of high-quality, timely patents and trademarks for all the cool technology surrounding you. <laughs> as it were. My role within the agency, um, a pretty long title there. I wear a lot of hats within the agency, all, all basically surrounding um, user or prioritization of data, whether it be um, internal data, analytics, AI efforts, as well as our public data dissemination, which um, is a key portion of the IP system. So you need to share what you've been done, what you've been doing, so others can build upon it. All right, perfect. And this is for you as well. So I have some questions worked up, but I'm not going to spend all of the time that we have on the panel with that, but I will get, get us started. So what are the government's current policies and regulations regarding the use of learned language models and transformers in various agencies and overall? I feel like it's, you know, we have been covering artificial intelligence for many, many years, specifically since 2017 officially, but it's been around for quite some time, right? The term was officially coined in 1956. This isn't something that's new. Yet, new technologies seem to come on and everybody's like, well, this is the newest, greatest thing. So, you know, now we need to start having some rules, regulations around this. So what are your perspectives at both your agencies, maybe in general? Uh, and since you have the mic, we'll start with you, Scott. Just with us. You want to start with Tony? All right. Yeah, sure, yeah. Uh, yeah okay. 
that's okay with everybody else. Uh, so um, there's there's two splits to this answer. One is most of us have little policy derived yet specifically about LLMs like ChatGPT. It is very new and it takes a while for formal policies to get stood up. Agencies vary on how comfortable they are with you experimenting with it. Uh, the NIES housed in the VA, uh, very limited application will have in the VA, mostly just to help you like flesh out your thoughts for let's say talking points. Uh, at NASA, they're a little more percept uh, allowance. But one thing to keep in mind is an LLM and things like this are AI. And AI as a broader category does have uh, several new but very powerful uh, regulations involved like the collection EOs, most importantly EO 5960, which was a Trump um, EO about trustworthy AI that was good, but not great and left out uh, quality. I'll let you figure out maybe why that was left out. And then Joe Biden, when he came into office, immediately added uh, equity as an additional qualification. So we have a list of things we have to do under what we call trustworthy AI. So if you're thinking about what government does to regulate these things, that trustworthy is kind of our tagline for what we're looking for. Great, perfect. Who wants to go next? Pat? Sure. Okay. I from the state perspective, we're in a similar space, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, LLM, uh, very much in the um, uh, development process right now as far as how we want to handle that. Um, many, much more focus right now is kind of trying to mitigate or limit some of the risks we have with some of those unknowns up front around how it's being used. So for example, some of the concerns around um, someone within a particular office being able to begin generating um, procurement requirements or something along those lines and how we want to try to put some guardrails around that initially as we start to evolve out you know, our use cases and the policy around that. So we're in a similar state uh, as the federal government of, of starting to evolve. Um, we've been talking about this at least so my role as the state chief data officer is over all the executive branch. So I've got uh, different insight into the different agencies of 28 exec executive branch agencies uh, in Maryland that, that are principal agencies. Uh, they all have different approaches of, of where this could be viable. And we initially were looking at this as a longer roadmap in order to develop some of these policies. It has been rapidly uh, increased as far as our timeline to try to get around uh, solidifying these policies because of just the nature of ChatGPT or Google Bard or, you know, the different different uh, uh, generative AI uh, uh, availability that's out there and the need to be able to put some of those those guardrails up to ensure that, you know, our staff and then the people working in the state aren't solely relying on that in order to provide uh, documents that are seen as authoritative, are seen as, as uh, set in stone as, as uh, uh, complying with policy or uh, helping support legislation at all. From the PTO perspective, um, and kind of going back to this is part of the pilot of this room, uh, Amazon. Yep. Um, patents, uh, patents basically describe an invention, comes down to one sentence, and that one sentence is I claim, and then you state what your invention or your, your novelty part is. Any idea how much that, that one sentence for Amazon one click patent is worth? How much it's worth? How much it might be oh, worth? Billion, really? Billion, yeah, it, it's it actually is about three billion okay. a year. Yeah, it, right. <laughs> yeah, and that's over a twenty year. Okay, so given that that one sentence in language models is worth you know three billion dollars a year, our policy is you know, and I think we're a little like maybe we may be a little leading in some of the agencies. We recently put out a policy that says we're not going to let people use it um, internally because we don't have enough visibility with respect to 
how that information that people may be using and interacting with it could impact something like somebody's $3 billion sentence um, as, as, a, as a part. So that's sort of, you know, I think um, where we're looking at, we also have a lot of policies in, in relationship to AI inventorship. Um, how do we feel, you know, just sort of pulling the room, should, should machines be considered inventors? Yes, I guess it's a pull the room. Should, should so basically the idea is that should a machine be allowed to create an invention and then be patented? We think some machine. Well, there's no hands up on that. Who would, you know, what if there's a there's a whole host of things? Be, I mean, there's a big uh, number Supreme Court case on Davis uh, basically said an inventor has to be a human. It's supposed to be a person according to the law. Well, is that a good thing? Yeah, that's a great policy question, which all kind of ties back to, you know, why is the USPTO looking at our, our policies right now? It's, we're not going to let people, you know, we're blocking usage of it right, um, at this instant. However, we recognize the potential as, as um, also does, and we're trying to put it as a not net, yeah, but not quite yet. That was actually giving me my follow-up. Uh, it's always a follow-up to the question about the usage. And in the demo that we have with InterImage, there was a, it was a great use case, which is, you know, there's all these web pages, there's all these documents and PDFs. And as a poor citizen, I have a hard time finding stuff, right? I mean, you would think that there'd be like a perfect application, like, oh, just tell me where the application is for this or this or that. But, but of course, we have accuracy issues. So that's why I'm thinking, oh, you know, there's going to be, do you think there's going to be demand from people to start opening up? I know Jeremy had something to say on this topic too, but I don't know. Yeah. Any other person? I would I'd kind of reflect on, on that particular question. Um, a lot of it goes into the use case and the purpose as well around that. So, for example, uh, I was part of a meeting last week where we had someone talking about questions that they have been exploring through, uh, in this case, it was through a preliminary trial with, with Google Bar. Um, and they were asking and answering questions and telling us certain information about a particular program that was relying exclusively on data that is publicly available and, and can be, it, it was proving what they wanted to. However, from a business functionality standpoint, we rely on additional sets of data internally that are not publicly available, that would not be included as part of that analysis. And the concerns we have are not so much with what the technology capabilities are and the future of using that to help us do things more effectively. It is ensuring that the users of it understand what they're asking, what they need and what is helping to produce that and source that to let them make better, smarter business decisions that impact their, their jobs. And I think that was the, the group we were talking to came in very excited to tell us how we need to change all these things. And then when we asked, is it, you know, what about these particular environments that are, you know, real-time data that we're consuming that are not QA'd and at a point we're making available, what about that? And there was basically a response, well, we can't naturally deal with that. Well, that's part of our business process. So we would have to have this has to be part of that conversation moving forward where we don't want to necessarily be in a restrictive, we will never use this and there's no way for us to have this support uh, the practice within the state of Maryland. Um, we just need to be very deliberate in our approach to understanding that how we adopt it needs to be well communicated, well understood, and vetted appropriately within our programs to make sure that we're leveraging it as or maximizing it as much as possible for the right purpose. Thanks. Yeah, I think um, I, I love hearing the perspectives of 
friends here who are responsible for the policy, and I certainly am not on the on the uh, private sector side. But I think where I would love to just chime in a little bit also is um, with an anecdote, actually. So maybe it's well known, but the story of ATMs, right? So there was actually a big panic, I think, in the 1980s that all bank tellers would be like sort of summarily unemployed very, very quickly. Um, and actually, as it turns out, between 1970 and 2010, the number of bank tellers in America doubled from 300,000 to 600,000. So it's a paradox, right? So how does that happen? So we have these automated machines, and yet we're, we're concerned that all these people are going to be employed. And, and by contrast, actually, it, it sort of um, elevates and makes more important that, that role. Um, and so actually, I think there's a really sort of interesting potential paradox here as well, right? Where all these automations are coming, but humans actually might even become more important, right? Just as we were hearing in all these specific kind of government-specific examples, you still need individuals, you know, with brains who understand kind of the context that they're operating in to make, you know, to call the balls and strikes, right? To kind of understand, you know, is this inbounds or not? Is this the right answer? Is the AI hallucinating? And so I kind of give that, you know, sort of the, the one example, but I mean, I think, um, I think automation has been around ever since sort of the industrial revolution and, and yet we're still finding new things to do and new ways to improve. And one thing I don't think is going to get automated is ethics. Uh, you know, sort of making, you know, decisions about, you know, what is and what is not ethical, right? We're not going to leave that up to um, to machines, I don't think, quite yet, so. Yeah, and that, does anybody in the audience have a question? Okay. Yeah, I like questions there for a lot of people. <laughs> um, so, Scott, you spoke about the, uh, Amazon basically having that go go private, that one sentence, that one line. How do you distinguish uh, what code is proprietary and what is not, and where do you kind of draw that line uh, for patents moving forward? That's probably a, a little more of a, a policy question. So with pat with patents, um, there's certainly a statutory. There's stat there are particular statutes that say what can or can't be patented. Software per se. Um, in and of itself is not something that is patentable subject matter. It has to, you know, when you think about patents, it's, it's machines, it's processes, it's things, traditionally speaking. So with the, with the Amazon kind of one-click patent, which was a little more um, looking at kind of a, a little more process space um, for my recollection of it, um, we don't, you know, we're not necessarily looking at it from a perspective of um, we're well, really only looking at from perspective has this been done before? Is it new, novel, non-obviousness, non-obvious um, in terms of whether or not we're making it, you know, available to uh, as patent uh, for an exclusive right? So I don't know if it quite answered, quite answered the question, um, but we're not we're not necessarily looking. Yeah, it's really the applicant's decision as to whether or not they want to keep something like that as proprietary or share it with the public. In which case. Um, they can potentially have an exclusive right to that technology. Were models models? Models. Oh, machine models. And that's a that's a challenging question. Maybe. Yeah. As it could be an algorithm, but if you then it's sort of it gets kind of really complicated. It's, um, that's it's, a, it's a good policy. Yeah, you know, it's another good policy. It's a little off the LLM, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's a good, good policy question. Perfect. All right. So, you know, this also goes into ethics. We had talked about that a little bit, right? That's something that we need to consider. And I know as 
We continue to use artificial intelligence, machine learning, helping with decision-making, helping augment the human's job. These are coming into play. And I think that many different agencies, citizens as well, you know, they're saying, understanding the use of their data, want some of these questions answered. So what do you think the government's priorities are and what have you seen that in terms of, you know, ensuring the responsible use of these large language models and transformers in different applications? And it depends. Some applications may have more of an impact than others, such as finance, healthcare, things like that. So, uh, Tony, I'll start with you. So what do you think about ensuring, you know, responsible use of this? Uh, so, man, uh, here's, what we're, here's what we're trying to do. Uh, and I think we're reasonably successful. Is to go back to that trust for the AI thing, right? So trust for the AI means a lot of stuff. That's got like nine or 10, not 10 now, uh, principles, which include things that are traditionally ethics and things that are traditionally like technology. So privacy protecting, for instance, uh, is really like our security or technological questions. But then we also have things like equity and fairness and um, lawful in keeping with our nation's values, which is such a nebulous phrase, but is ethically minded at the very least. Um, so I think that those are the things we're really trying to push forward in general. When it comes to, you said healthcare, which is important for us in the EA, uh, that's that's a big deal, right? Because we mess up with data that's lives, possibly. And on the VBA side, that's veterans benefits, which is important. And on the cemetery side, I don't want to bury people in the wrong place or forget where I bury them either, to be honest. So I really like across the VA, what how we keep our data um, very clean and very secure and very private, I think, is how we really interpret ethics. I, I'm like a real ethicist ethicist, so I, I think about a lot more things privately. Uh, there's things that I think government could or should be doing that we're only getting around to doing. But the, the, the official line is uh, really to, to consider those trusted AI policies. You have to do them. Remember that an EO is the force of law for the executive branch, right? It's just like a law for you all driving down the street. We really are not supposed to break them. And there are sort of cops that do sort of show up and knock on your door if you do. Uh, so those trustworthy AI requirements are real binding things that we're all trying very, very hard to apply. And buried in them, again, is a lot of uh, what I would call ethics or ethically minded considerations. I was actually going to toss it over because it's a, yeah, very sweet. Sure. Yeah, I think the, the challenge that we're faced with um, is similar in the, the federal space. It's kind of how do you start to measure that as part of the, the process itself. Um, approach where we're very uh, deliberate about is kind of the culture of ethics within, within everything we're doing so that um, you know, there are going to be biases in data, uh, regardless of how hard you may or may not try. Um, but we, we know that's that's going to be part of the case. So I think um, an area that we're we're trying to advocate for, build upon, and continue to improve is the way that culturally we're looking at ethics being part of all the decisions that we're making, whether that is in the way that we're developing models, whether it's uh, you know to the point of having high quality and, and kind of the, the approaches around how we manage our data. Um, and then also, you know, our approach to the decisions around why we're building these models, why we're kind of moving down the path of certain analytics is, you know, looking to try to combine those three areas and, and um, leverage uh, the people we have into the decisions and the technologies that we're using um, to make sure that from an ethics standpoint, we're, um, you know, we're, we're aligned uh, in the areas we're supposed to. But it is somewhat nebulous and, and kind of hard from a measurement standpoint and a metric standpoint to really um, uh, to track it uh, in a way that's, that's consistent across the board. Did anybody use like a driving app to get here today? Yes, always. 
did, did you think about why you told me to go left? Oh. Or did you just go left? <laughs> no, we actually, we have, we joke about this a lot because the office with Michael Scott, when it tells him to, but it's like, go left, and he drives into the lake. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, you well, I mean, how many of us blindly trust it? Particularly if you're in an unknown area. The board owners, it's a garment event for Walmart. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Actually, my husband thinks that I do that. I was really bad at directions and still. That became available. He thinks that's dumb, but you know, it gets me from point A to point B. So, I mean, think about did it tell you to go left or right because it was looking out for your best interest? Does anyone? Probably not. Or, you know, maybe it's telling you to go left because it's looking for more data on that to see if there's traffic blockage on a particular area. That kind of goes to the question of trust. You know, and why in the federal now this is kind of a silly example of not talking complaints and stuff like that, but um, you know, as federal servants, a lot of times, you know, it that the cost of that failure and that, you know, making sure that it's trustworthy, understanding what goes into it. What are you what exactly are you accepting in terms of risk that you're using to it? It's hugely, you know, in federal space, there'll be lives and lives involved in that. Um, kind of decision. So I think it's really, you know, that's where that trustworthy, that ethical transparency, why is it making that decision is so very, very important. And when we look at large language models, at least today, we're not sure, you know, so I think we've been taking a bit, you know, as from with our agency, we've been taking a more conservative approach with respect to, well, you know, we're not really sure yet. If you know where where this thing is going, certainly see hopes and you know very much excitement. Yeah, we're we're not in the business of of um, you know patent office. We're not in the business of squashing innovation. Um, that's not really our, our mission, but it's that you know that ethical trustworthy approach that we're really trying to you know struggle and take a take a hard look at. Yeah, of course. Um, I kind of refrain from saying I've been on the job monitor, but I guess it's been a great conversation, and and something was just mentioned. Right, so I said there's some things that the government probably could be doing that we're maybe not doing necessarily. And I talked about trust with EA and what trust with EA means. Uh, when I worked at NASA, which I recently left a rotation on, there's one thing that we did at NASA that other agencies are, haven't really done yet, although I'm hoping that I will catch up. And that's remembering that we're in a globe and there's a lot of countries out there that have their own trust with EA policies and practices. And we can learn a lot from them. And there's something that's extremely common around the globe. Pretty much every single trust with EA framework that isn't American it contains something called the wellness principle or the well-being principle or the goodness principle, something that is saying, look, if you're going to deploy an AI, it has to be good, has to be for the good, has to be at least a reasonable net benefit with no cost and challenges. And that's something that we really, really should consider really look into. For that, like when you deploy an AI, the AI is good and for good, period. Yeah, it's interesting because we have looked at many, you know, many different countries have AI, have their ethical and responsible AI policies, uh, but also companies do, different organizations. And so we looked at about maybe 65 or so. One thing that we found is that language, right, is not precise between region, between country. And so sometimes they would put something in there that you needed to interpret especially if it wasn't written in English to begin with. And also we did see, I, it depended on where it came from as well, how it was affecting that region, let's say. India, for example, cared a lot about the well-being of how is AI going to impact workers? Because is it going to just, you know, 
cause some sort of mass unemployment in certain areas. We always say AI isn't a job killer, but it can be a job category killer. And you need to be mindful of that, especially as you're looking to do this. I know that there's also, you know, different policies that it was like, don't deploy this with the intention of mass, you know, layoffs and mass unemployment. So all of these things have to come into play. And you're right, it is a much larger ecosystem that you need to be mindful of that uh, it's not just maybe your state or your specific agency. It's how is it impacting everybody? Does anybody have any comments on that? Well, you know, I just actually wanted to uh, maybe just take a quick step back because I think it was so interesting to hear kind of the you know policy perspective. But then you inspired me with the example of the GPS um, because I actually have thought about that and talked about it with my wife, actually. like. Um, you know, how does it optimize, like, to make a recommendation to go down this street or that street? One could be, like, really, you know, like, filled up with trucks and just, like, super congested and, like, frankly, ugly. And then the other's a little bit more scenic, but it takes two minutes longer. Like, there's no button in Google Maps that says, like, take me down the slightly more, you know, beautiful route. Um, as, as, like a, as a user of that, you know, sort of recommending system, I don't get an input in that process, right? And, and so I think... Um, while I'm not sort of in the position to say, like, I'm going to drop everything and start working on GPS systems and, like, make my mark and, and change the course of that industry, maybe somebody can make that decision and, and that's up to the individual. But I do think what we can sort of deploy, you know, at large and, and kind of create a baseline for everybody is literacy actually about these technologies, right? So we talk about data literacy all the time, um, which is critical. And I think this is probably a level up from data literacy, although it's, you know, we can talk about it as sort of its own introductory, like, you know, sort of AI for everybody is, if I can shamelessly plug a Coursera course. Um, but, you know, I think um, this notion of like job category killer, yes, maybe. I don't know. Actually, I don't think we know a, a lot about what's going to happen, but I definitely think we can prepare ourselves by learning and developing that literacy. Right. Yeah. You don't know what you don't know, right? We can't predict the future. So we don't know what it's going to kill. But when we look back at the 1960s and there were rooms of secretaries, and we talked earlier, our friends at Alternates talking about typewriters, uh, who here owns one or knows how to operate one? Not really, right? So we don't have rooms of secretaries anymore. But did we have mass unemployment? No, because back in the 1960s, we didn't have social media marketers. We didn't have different things like that. Uh, so that's that's what we have to be careful of. So Jeremy's point about um, about the bank tellers is a good one. I'd say the opposite example of that is uh, our robotics in the auto industry, um, where there were mass uh, layoffs and employment. Uh, so my favorite statement about ChatGPT is that you won't lose your job to it. You'll lose potentially lose your job to somebody who's using it as a tool. Um, and that, with that context, assuming that's correct, um, what would you say are going to be is going to be the first ubiquitous tool? Uh, for using ChatGPT in the next year. And I'm saying this as somebody who's got to go up and write a grant later, so I'm kind of hoping what the answer would be, but I can take it off the bat. I, although my recommendation, I would not necessarily, I, I can't claim that it would be ubiquitous, but I think it's extremely promising to anybody who wants to take it up. That's something I've been working on personally in my spare time, which is actually learning how to code. Um, I don't know how to code. I've I've tried many times throughout my life. I've taken you know starting with computer science, all these different things. Um, it's hard to, I mean, you have to have a lot of self-discipline or stand or structure and and kind of you know follow that path. Um, that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is just to tell the you know language model that I want a certain outcome, right? 
So I'm developing uh, a little application now to help me keep track of all of my browsing history, my tabs, just keep it organized, you know, help me kind of uh, develop a system there. I want to do that because it's going to make me a better user of my own computer, make me feel more organized, more kind of in control of my, you know, workspace. That motivates me to learn how to do it. And by the way, the, the you know, sort of the, you know, like ChatGPT, it's all the time I have to prompt it and remind it and, and steer it in all these different directions. Um, but then I learn how to code through that process, right? And so I, I am very much in the loop, and it actually is kind of an interactive process for me. I don't want to be flippant and deny the reality that there could be a lot of, you know, automation of jobs. And the example of, um, you know, car manufacturing is, is a very poignant one. Um, I don't know that we can sort of say for sure, you know, sort of control for sure how that's all going to play out. But I do think that our friends in the government have more perhaps of an opportunity to manage that and sort of manage the structural unemployment that might come about more than sort of any individual, you know, industry as it were. So um, it's hard to, it's hard to be perfect, right? But I think that, you know, these folks are probably the ones that, that, that can help us out. Uh, yeah. Do you have any comments? I'm just that I, I think less of, of the kind of category or job killer. I think about the, one of the challenges we have in government, at least the state government, is often um, the resources we have. Uh, you know, our labor force can be at times, it can be at times challenging to bring in um, uh, just because of a lack of competitiveness when it comes to salary and, and benefits and things like that, that used to maybe advantageous, be advantageous, but now is starting to kind of level set with some of the uh, other uh, industries in the private sector. But what this could potentially be is an enhancement opportunity for those areas where we have those gaps. So I look at, at an area at that kind of analyst level where we really struggle in government, where we've got developers who are really core in, in trying to develop um, in their environments. We've got kind of the executive leaders and we've got managers. The, the gap in between tends to be an area that we struggle with. And I think generative AI, you know, LLMs, and, and just looking at the way that we can leverage AI will provide opportunity for us to fill some of those gaps without necessarily having to go out and identify different labor categories or different resources to bring in. So I look at it really as less of a, a category killer from a job standpoint. It's a, it's a deficiency killer for us in state government because it may have the potential to fill some of those gaps that we consistently are, are, are faced with. Does anybody else have a question? You know, Ron has one. You know. Oh, okay. All right. Well, we are just about at time. So I want to thank everybody on the panel. This is a really wonderful discussion. So thank you so much. Do we have any closing words that you'd like to say? We'll start with Scott and work our way down. <laughs> I know. It's like, it's like the final podcast. Yeah. Okay. What do you believe the future of AI is in general and its application to governments and beyond? Wow. That's a, for our podcast. Yeah. yeah. Some people get very philosophical with this. Some people get very practical. A few years ago when I started asking this, I really wanted self-driving vehicles because I don't like driving. And Ron drives and, well, you know, we're a little scared sometimes. But now I don't think that that's going to be possible. So I'm going to have to accept this. I'm going to have to accept where Waze tells us to go, even if it tells us to go into a lake. I, you know, closing word, I think it finally, you know, if you were a philosophy major, or an ethicist in, in school or college, you're in demand now. <laughs> and I think you're going to be growing more and more demand when we start looking at, you know, the, and I think, you know, when we go and touch on trustworthy AI and federal government role and process of it, really not forgetting we, as a society, 
should really be investing in the research needed to really understand that wider now, of course, we are in a global we are a global economy. There are competitors who have different views, um, and we certainly would rather use you know, I'm gonna, yeah, report from that that the American values from the uh, from the executive order, the nebulous American values from the executive order, um, <laughs> as it were, um, when it comes to that. But you know, I, I'd say it's a great time to be a, a a philosophical leader, and I look forward to you know. Some some great insight from some really smart people. Uh, yeah, I think we have been pushing for some time uh, culturally within the state of Maryland and conceptually around the idea we need to get to search-based analytics. Um, we, we rely so much on descriptive information via dashboards, which is great. But what we need to do is kind of bring the data and the information to the end user. Um, it, has historically been a slow growth process in bringing in applications and getting there. Uh, but we're now in an opportunity to kind of jumpstart and, and expedite that entire journey. Uh, we just need to do so under the constraints of knowing from um, a trustworthiness standpoint, an ethics standpoint, a privacy standpoint, that those those lanes are, are well-defined and we understand what the inputs and the outputs are going to be. But um, I think that idea of really bringing that information to the end user and allow them to explore the data based on the criteria they're looking is is going to be critical for advancing the way that we deliver services and we're now in an opportunity to realize that much sooner than i think many thought just even you know 18 months ago so. yeah i have to say maryland had this COVID dashboard during the you know peak of the crisis and it was it was basically like just an analytics tool that was open to everybody and i have to say that's pretty cool it shows like how many hospital beds there were and rate of infection and death rate i'm like okay now everybody's a power bi user <laughs> well, I'm super grateful for the opportunity here from our policymaking friends. Um, I think for me, my closing remark would be actually more to loop in with our technology demos. Um, I wanted to, to chat you guys out as well. I think what's coming down the pike um, is going to be incredibly impactful for complex uh, agencies, organizations. And I think we saw some really cool implementations earlier, and, and that gets me really, really excited. But I think what John said in, in closing in his uh, demonstration, really resonated with me as well, and I wanted to echo it, which is um, we shouldn't fall into the sort of fallacy or the trap that, you know, if I'm not technical, I can't interact with this or, or I can't benefit from this because, I mean, just to give a simple, you know, sort of example, like imagine your great-great-grandparent, you know, trying to interact with, with a laptop or something like that and, and looking at us sort of doing it on a daily basis. Um, we're all very technical, right? I mean, sort of, we all are. I mean, they're, they're, you know, sort of there's no going back at this point. So I think it's, a, it's up to us to kind of, you know, take some agency learn and be a little biased that that's that's where i'm coming from but i think learning is for everybody and and it's never too uh it's never too early to get started okay okay uh so somebody said we're philosophical so you're in trouble now um <laughs> because because i was one of them one of those uh i think i'm gonna take a slight step back from some of the more concrete things to take that invitation to philosophical for a second i'm going to suggest two things one is i think that we need to take a sincere consideration about how we think about the notion of intelligence and this strange idea that we have that human intelligence is somehow different or privileged in its process or functioning than animal or technological intelligence it doesn't mean they are the same it doesn't mean they're equal it just means that we really start to describe and think about how stimulus works and how repetition works and how we learn from our environment and how our pattern works i think you just see that ai just gets to take more turns faster and animals are just at a strategic disadvantage because of language and culture and things but intelligence kind of just is intelligence i think we start to get that we'll 
roll back on some of our terror that AI is going to be Terminator in five years. Uh, but we've also had a little more faith in our ability to interact with it and an understanding how to interact with it. If you realize that while AI is different, your it's how to put this. Think yourself less different than the AI. Stop focusing on how the AI thinks it does. Start thinking about how much you actually act like it. And that will help. Then the other one is something that I say every day, and people need to hear it every day, and nobody thinks about it. I don't think the is off fallacy is a real thing. Just because stuff is the way it is now doesn't mean that any logical or reasonable grounds that it ought to be that way tomorrow. And that's a particularly important with some of the things that Jeremy's mentioning and my associates on the panel about when it comes to how we think about new and emerging technologies. If we continue to think about what a patent looked like yesterday or what privacy looked like yesterday or what the, the red threats to a leak of set documents was yesterday, right? It's not going to be the same tomorrow. So we need to very much stop thinking of ourselves so special, stop thinking that the history is privileged and really embrace this as a new, fresh thing that we are just as much a part of as anything else. All right. Well, thank you for all those parting words. And I want to take, thank everybody on the panel today. You all did such an amazing job. And thank you for your questions. Uh, this is a really great opportunity. And thank you for letting me moderate. We've got great resources. If you're looking to get more insights and details on a range of technology that we discussed in this podcast and other topics as well, check out our resources, books, courses, checklists, explainer videos, webinars, and more at govfuture.com slash resources, tailored for our GovFuture listeners. Again, that's govfuture.com slash resources, and we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes as well. To view this episode's show notes, find additional episodes, subscribe to this podcast, and join the fastest growing community of government innovators, go to govfuture.com slash podcast. This sound recording and its contents are copyright GovFuture, all rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening to the GovFuture podcast and catch you at the next episode.